Hi, this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and I'm Mark Scarborough, and I promised you we were moving on, and we are. We are moving on to Inferno Canto 2, and we're going to take a chunk out of it. We're going to go 42 lines into this canto, the second canto of Inferno, but I lied to you. I said we were moving on. We are moving on. Unfortunately, Dante isn't. As we will discover in today's first 42 lines of the second canto of Inferno, I'm smiling because I know that many people are saying, when when are we getting to hell? Just be patient. We're going to get to hell, but not quite yet. Important stuff has to go down. So here we go. Canto 2, this is my rough translation of lines 1 through 42. The day was waning and the darkening air was freeing the creatures who live on earth from their labors. I alone was left to get myself ready for the coming war, that is, of the journey and the sorrow, which unerring memory will retrace. O muses, O high genius, help me now, O memory that already wrote what I saw, your nobility will here become apparent. I began like this, poet, my guide, Consider if my strength is powerful enough before you trust me to the deep passage. You say that Silvius's father, while still corrupted, went to the immortal regions with his senses intact. Listen, that the adversary of all evil showed him such favor given who and what he was and even the high effect that came from him seems perfectly right to a man of intellect. For he had been chosen in the Empyrean to be the father of Mother Rome and her empire. Both of these, to tell you the truth, were established to serve as the sacred location where St. Peter's successors have their throne. On this journey, which you affirm he made, he came to know things that moved him to win and set up things for the papal mantle. Next, the chosen vessel went there to bring back the confirmation of our faith, the first thing on the way to salvation. But I? Why should I go there? Who permits it? I am not Aeneas. I am not Paul. Neither I nor anyone else deigns me worthy. And so, if I do let go of myself and come with you, I fear the venture may turn out to be madness. You are wise. You understand what I'm trying to say. And as such a one who unwills what he's willed, changing his mind because of new thoughts, so that he pulls back from what he's begun, just so was I on that dark slope. With too much thinking, I'd stopped what I'd begun. Okay, that's the first bit. Now, let me remind you what happened in the first canto. Dante wakes up in a dark wood. He tries to climb a small hill or a mountain. I don't know how big it is. He almost gets to the top. He slides back. He's stopped by three beasts. Virgil appears out of nowhere. Virgil says these three beasts will be dealt with by someone else, the greyhound that's going to take care of these three beasts, and let's go. And then the second canto stops. It stops that forward momentum. Darn it, we just want to get into hell, right? And we're not going to get there. In fact, we got to stop and do this canto. This canto is a little unusual, canto too, and we're going to be on this for four episodes. And it's a little bit unusual in that it is an all dialogue canto. There are some bigger dialogues, I shouldn't say bigger, big dialogue cantos in Purgatorio and Paradiso, but this is a little unusual this early in the poem. And there are going to be several speakers, but there's a reason for that. And it's not just that uh, Dante wanted to write a lot of dialogue. 
it's in fact that this entire canto, and I'll talk about this over the next four episodes, is a giant rhetorical game to establish who is worthy to tell this tale and who is worthy to be its protagonist. It may not seem like it yet, but Dante is sparring with his poetical father, Virgil, even before he sets out. This is a set of verbal rhetorical games, and we're just at the opening salvo here in the first 42 lines. Rhetorical, and I mean by that the medieval definition of rhetorical as in verbal persuasion, words that move an action out of a hearer or a reader. And these words are being spoken deliberately to get certain reactions from their hearers and speakers. Let me go back and start through the whole canto again and just let you hear it unfold. A full day has elapsed since Dante woke up in that dark wood. Now we're getting towards sunset. Remember when he starts to climb the hill, the sun starts coming up over the hill. And now in Canto 2, the day is waning. So believe it or not, Canto 1 took place in a day. This is very unusual for the comedy because whole sections of giant bits them will take place basically over one day. So it's a little bit unusual that one Canto whips through 24 hours. This helps us see that first canto as different from the rest of the poem, as more prologue than actual the poem itself. I, the poem doesn't really have a prologue, but it helps us see the first canto as prologue. So the day was waning, and the darkening air was freeing the creatures who live on earth from their labors. This tells us that the pilgrim Dante is out of sync with the timing of the day. I mean, it's 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 sunset. Every, everything's calming down. You know, uh, everybody's heading for their bourbon or <laughs> their gin and tonic. Every, everything's winding down from the day. It only makes sense that the journey to hell, to Inferno, would begin at night. And we'll later see that the journey up Purgatorio begins, and it is up Purgatorio, begins at dawn. That only makes sense, too, because that is the dawning of the new day. But here we're darkening, and this darkening causes Dante a bit of, uh, let's say, emotional distress. I alone was left. That's how the line reads. The day was waning, and the darkening air was freeing the creatures who live on the earth from their labors. I alone was left. He's back at the start. This is like being back at Canto 1, right? Alone. I mean, Virgil's standing, floating, hovering, whatever Virgil's doing, he's hovering right over there. But I'm the only person here. I'm the only physicality here. I alone was left to get myself ready for the coming war. That is, and catch this double battle of the journey and the sorrow. The war has two fronts. It has the journey, that is the actual undertaking of walking across the known universe. And then it has this problem, the pieta, the sorrow the, the emotional resonance of the journey itself, the emotional response to what he's about to see, which is not going to be easy to stomach. That hell should not and is not easy to stomach. So I've got to get myself ready for what comes and the sorrow. And Virgil in the first canto has already warned him that there's going to be all kinds of sorrow before he makes it to purgatory, which unerring memory will trace this is a little funky because when we get up 
to Paradiso, long, long down the comedy at the rate we're going. When we get up to Paradiso, we will discover that words, in fact, do fail him, and even memory does fail him. So that it's called unerring memory right now is a bit of a problem for later on. We'll save that whole discussion for later on. But this may be because Dante doesn't fully understand what memory is and has to learn it over the course of comedy. And then after we get this scene set and to get himself ready, the day is dying, you know, all this stuff, we get the first invocation. O oh, muses, O oh, hygienius, help me now, O oh, memory, that already wrote what I saw. Notice that the comedy is an act of rewriting. It's a palimpsest. It's been written over. It's already been written by memory. His job is to write it again. Your nobility will here become apparent. Two things. This is the first of nine invocations in comedy. There's one more in Inferno, way down in Canto uh, 32. There are two in Purgatorio, and there are five in Paradiso. This is the second thing. You will notice that this is not a very Christian invocation. This is not... Oh, sacred mother, oh, Mary, oh, Jesus, oh, God, oh, Holy Spirit, no. Oh, muses. This is a classical invocation. In fact, over the course of comedy, these invocations, these prayers to help the poet succeed at what he's doing, become increasingly Christian. And they start with a pagan or a classical one. And slowly, over the course of all nine of them in comedy, Nine, three times three, divine perfection times three. See, this. how can you say this thing's not got an architecture to it? Nine invocations? It's clearly a giant architectural structure, this poem. Nine, three times three. They start out as here, classical, and they get more Christian over the course of comedy because Dante will learn more about what God requires. And then it's just, I began in the Italian, but I translated it as, I began like this because it sounds better in English. Poet, my guide, consider if my strength is powerful enough before you trust me to the deep passage. I'm going to pause there. Passage. It's the word passo. It means passage as in a way, like trust, you know, make sure that I'm strong enough to handle this journey, this road that I'm about to be on. It also means passo as in a passage of poetry, a passage of a work of literature. And if it means that, then it's strange. Consider if my strength is powerful enough before you trust me to the deep passage, the alto paso. Am I good enough to do this? Can I handle this? And I, a lot of scholars want to make it one or the other. It's got to be the passage or it's got to be the poetic passage. Listen, why can't it be both? Why can't it be that the question is, how do I get through this? Dante is asking for poetic permission from Virgil. What he gets, as you'll see in the course of this canto, is another permission entirely. In fact, Dante gets permission from three figures during the course of comedy. Three, the divine number of Trinity. Three figures over the course of comedy to write the poem. Here he's, in this canto, he's going to get basically permission from Virgil. Basically, a little funky, as you'll see, but basically, 
later in Purgatorio, he's going to get permission from his beloved Beatrice. Way at the end of Purgatorio, she's going to give him permission to write the poem. And then up in Paradiso, he's going to get permission from his ancestor, Caccia Guida, who is going to give him permission to write the poem. Three times he's given permission to write this poem. In this case, he's struggling with his poetic father in Beatrice's case, he's struggling with the love of his life. And in Cacciaguida's case, he's struggling with not only his familial history, but Tuscan history. So, basically, three struggles of why should I write this poem and three permissions to continue. Hey, I should say one thing. I should go back and tell you, you know that bit, that invocation of Muses of High Genius? Did you know that Chaucer adapted that for the invocation of of uh, of book two of the House of Fame, of his work. Chaucer kind of cribbed that right out of the Divine Comedy. And that tells you something about the Divine Comedy's reach because Chaucer is maybe 70, 80 years later than this. And this poem in A World Before Printing Presses has already made it up to England, which is pretty amazing. Okay, back to the poem. Poet. My guide, poet, he's talking to Virgil. Consider if my strength is powerful enough before you trust me the deep passage. You say that Silvius's father, while still corrupted, what he means is still in his body. Uh, think Christians, the flesh is corrupted. While still corrupted, went to the immortal regions with his senses intact. What in the world? I'm sure as I read it, if you don't know that poem, you thought, what in the world? Who is Silvius's father? Silvius's father is Aeneas. He's talking about Virgil's great hero. He's saying to Virgil, you, Virgil, wrote the Aeneid about Silvius's father. That is, you wrote about Aeneas, while still corrupted, went to the immortal regions with his senses intact. So you in, and it's true, in the Aeneid, there's a passage in which, which Aeneas goes to the underworld. So he says, hey, you, Virgil, wrote this already. Listen, the poet goes on in, in comedy, that the adversary of all evil, wow, what, the adversary of all, that's a long way around to say the word God. You'll notice that the word God does not fall out of Dante's mouth easily early in comedy. This is all part of the pilgrim's education. Dante is still using classical models, not Christian models. We'll talk way more about that in the future. But here, he's not saying, God, he's using this circumlocution. The adversary of all evil showed him such favor, so showed Silvius' his father, that is, Aeneas, such favor. It's right that God allowed Aeneas into the underworld, the adversary of all evil allowed Aeneas into the underworld, for he had been chosen in the Empyrean to be the father of Mother Rome and her emperor. I mean, Aeneas founds Rome. So, of course, God would let him look at the afterlife and look at the underworld because he helps found Rome, which becomes the seat of Peter's successors on the throne. It seems perfectly right, the poem says, to a man of intellect, for he had been chosen in the Empyrean to be the father of Mother Rome and her empire. Both of these, to tell you the truth, were established to serve as the sacred location where St. Peter's successors have the throne. By the way, Dante is going to be quite adept at distinguishing between the seat of papal power and the sitters in the seat of papal power. 
<laughs> thereby making Dante just slightly Protestant for <laughs> the Protestant Reformation. Anyway, on this journey, the poem goes on, which you affirm he made, he came to know things that moved him to win, that is, by going to the other world, he helped, he, it helped him win the battle to conquer Italy and found Rome and set things up for the papal mantle to come. Okay, so that's all understandable. I get why he got to go to the underworld. Next, Dante, go, the pilgrim goes on, the chosen vessel went there. Notice again, not named. The chosen vessel went there to bring back the confirmation of our faith, the first thing on the way to salvation. This is a reference to 2 Corinthians 12, 4, in which Paul claims he was caught up into the heavens. And so Paul got to do this. Now, in the next stanza, Dante names who he's talking about. Remember, it was just Silvius's father and then the chosen vessel. But I, he goes on, the pilgrim, why should I go there? Who permits it? I am not Aeneas. I am not Paul. There's the naming of them. So let me just back up and say something about this. This seems very smarty pants, doesn't it? To say, you say that Silvius's father, while still corrupted, went, I mean, why didn't you just say Aeneas? If, you, if we were in writing class together, you know your teacher and you wrote this, your teacher would say, stop fooling around, just say Aeneas. I and mean, if you wrote next, the chosen vessel went there to bring back confirmation of our faith, your teacher would say, what was with you? Just write St. Paul or just write Paul. Whatever you want to write, just name it. Don't, don't go around it. That going around it is important. It's a, it's, a, it's a rhetorical strategy called periphrasis. And what it indicates is that A, I'm smart enough to do this. I don't even have to name the main figures. I can name what happened to them and you'll understand who I'm talking about because you too are learned. You as well know who these people are. In other words, periphrasis is a form of flattery. The pilgrim, Dante, is saying to Virgil, you're smart enough to know who I'm talking about, aren't you? In the larger context, Dante the poet is saying to his reader, you're smart enough to know who I'm talking about, right? We're on an even playing field here. And by using periphrastic phrasing, paraphrases from the Greek to walk around or to circumlocute in some way, to walk around, by, I can walk around this without even saying it. And you're going to know who I'm talking about. Dante the pilgrim is flattering Virgil. Dante, the poet, is flattering you. Now, you may say, well, I didn't know who Silvius's father was, and I knew who the chosen vessel was. Yeah, all right. You know what? You're not a medieval, and you're not a person literate enough in the Middle Ages to have known these things. Don't <laughs> cut yourself some slack. You now know who it is. It's Aeneas and it's Paul. And notice that in the poem, the two examples of people who were worthy enough to see the afterlife are first a political figure, Aeneas founding Rome, and second, a theological figure, Paul getting caught up into heaven. Interestingly, it's not the Apostle John and the Apocalypse or, or what the Protestants called the Book of Revelations. It's interesting that it's not that. It's Paul. But right now, no, what I just want to focus on is that the, the political figure comes before the religious figure, and the political figure is given a lot of space all about the founding of Rome, and the religious figure is just given three little lines, one tercet, one stanza. This move both flatters Virgil, who doesn't know the Christian God, and it also flatters Virgil as a poet because he wrote about the founding of Rome through Aeneas, and it shows where Dante has to get. 
because the pilgrim right now is more focused on the classical models than on the religious truth. Over the course of the poem, this will slowly change. This is the development of the pilgrim, is to <laughs> ultimately, in the end, flip these and be more interested in Paul than Aeneas. That he starts out with Virgil, more interested in Aeneas than Paul tells us everything, A, about his attempt to flatter Virgil, and B, everything about himself, still caught in classical models. Just that line but I, why should I go there? Who permits it? It's a larger question than you may think at first blush. You know, like me. How dare I comment on the comedy? I don't have a PhD in medieval Italian lit. I'm a lover of Dante, an admirer, a true amateur, meaning I love what I'm doing. Who am I to do this? Who permits it? I have to earn your trust to read the comedy to you. It's a big question. Who permits it? And in this case, it seems as if Dante is asking Virgil, do you permit it? Are you going to let me do this? Poet, because he starts out, poet, my guide, consider, you tell me if my strength is powerful enough before you trust me to the deep passage. This question, who permits it, is big, and it's going to follow us out through this canto. And so let me go on in the actual reading of the comedy. And so if I do let go of myself and come with you, I fear the venture may turn out to be madness. The word there is foley and folly, foley, and it's a word that actually occurs several times in Inferno to indicate a dramatic overreach on someone's part. Um, Ulysses is going to use this exact word. We're going to find it, foley, folly, uh, madness in Ulysses' mouth way down toward the bottom of hell in which Ulysses is going to basically follow out his folly to his death. Yes, the Ulysses you know from Homer, if you know Homer, that Ulysses. That word folly is going to come up again, and it tends to always come up in terms of dramatic overreach. So the question here is, I fear the venture may turn out to be dramatic overreach. You are wise, giving all the power to Virgil. You understand what I'm trying to say, giving all the, the interpretive power to Virgil. And so is one who unwills what he's willed. That's really important. Because Inferno, this entire canticle, the first canticle of comedy, is about the correction of the will. And here we see that Dante the Pilgrim's will is very, very weak. And as such a one, in fact, he's ceded interpretive power to Virgil. You understand what I'm saying? And in seeding that power, we, we see how weak his will is. And as such a one who unwills what he's will, changing his mind because of new thoughts, so that he pulls back from what he's begun, just so was I on that dark slope. With too much thinking, I'd stopped what I'd begun. That's what Dante the poet tells us was the problem with Dante the pilgrim. With too much thinking, I'd stopped what I'd begun. Unfortunately, it looks like when we look at the canto, it's with too much talking, I'd stopped what I'd begun. With banging on too much and all my flattery and rhetorical strategy, I brought myself to a dead halt. But 
the poet steps in here with too much thinking, I'd stopped what I'd begun, to explain to us that the pilgrim has faltered, not because um, he's played too high a game of rhetoric, but because he's still too self-conscious. Listen, have you ever tried to be a writer? The one thing you really can't be is self-conscious. A lot more about that in the next episode and future episodes of Walking with Dante. So before I end, let me read you this whole canto. uh, Well, not the whole canto, but the first 42 lines of Canto 2 one more time. The day was waning, and the darkening air was freeing the creatures who live on earth from their labors. I alone was left to get myself ready for the coming war, that is, of the journey and the sorrow, which unerring memory will retrace. O muses, O high genius, help me now. O memory that already wrote what I saw, your nobility will here become apparent. I began like this. Poet, my guide, consider if my strength is powerful enough before you trust me to the deep passage. You say that Silvius's father, while still corrupted, went to the immortal regions with his senses intact. Listen, that the adversary of all evil showed him such favor, given who and what he was, and even the high effect that came from him, seems perfectly right to a man of intellect. For he'd been chosen in the Empyrean to be the father of Mother Rome and her empire. Both of these, to tell you the truth, were established to serve as the sacred location where St. Peter's successors have their throne. On this journey, which you affirm he made, he came to know things that moved him to win and set up things for the papal mantle. Next, the chosen vessel went there to bring back the confirmation of our faith, the first thing on the way to salvation. But I? Why should I go there? Who permits it? I am not Aeneas. I'm not Paul. Neither I nor anyone else deigns me worthy. And so if I do let go of myself and come with you, I fear the venture may turn out to be madness. You were wise. You understand what I'm trying to say. And as such a one who unwills what he's willed, changing his mind because of new thoughts so that he pulls back from what he's begun, just so was I on that dark slope. With too much thinking, I'd stopped what I'd begun. Now, I know some of you are waiting for the entrance to hell. You're going to have to wait a little longer because something rather shocking is going to happen in Canto 2. We're about to head to paradise or to the Empyrean, the highest bits of paradise. And the way the comedy starts off after the dark wood, our next location in the comedy is not hell. It's heaven. We're about to go there in the next episode of Walking with Dante. So join me, subscribe, like the podcast if you like it. Leave me a comment if you want. I really appreciate it because after all, the answer to who permits this is you. So thanks for listening. Please subscribe. Connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter under Mark Scarborough. I'd love to connect with you and I'd love to have you back for the next bit of Canto 2 as we ascend to the very heights of heaven on the podcast Walking with Dante. Thank you.